I'm Christine Galusian. I'm a visiting research fellow in defense and foreign policies here at Cato Institute. Thank you for joining us this morning for our book forum featuring the recently released book, Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. Since you're here or watching online through the Cato website, you are likely interested not only in the political turmoil in Ukraine, which has been going on for about three years now, but also in the bigger picture beyond the conflict. How did the situation in Ukraine reach this point? What lessons can be learned about the crisis in Ukraine and the events which led up to it? How does the Ukraine crisis fit into the larger geopolitical dynamic of the post-Cold War era? In many ways, the story of Ukraine fits within the paradigm of former Soviet transition states. The country has faced and battled with weak political institutions, pervasive rent-seeking and corruption at the state level, continued patron-client relations with Russia, mainly through its energy transit system. But it has also undergone an orange revolution to try and change the course of its transition towards a more democratic one one more aligned with Western institutions, norms, and values. Nearly three years ago, this course was dramatically intercepted when what was initially a domestic dispute regarding Ukraine's political future turned into an international debacle, culminating with the annexation of Crimea by Russia, two ceasefire agreements, Minsk I and Minsk II, have proven largely ineffectual fundamentally flawed, and so the conflict continues. Indeed, just this Monday, the International Court of Justice began hearing a case brought forth by the government of Ukraine against the government of Russia, in which Ukraine argues that Russia violated two UN conventions during and in the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis. So the topic of this book forum is very timely, as are the questions addressed in the book. Should the US, the EU, and Russia have approached countries in this region differently? Or should these three countries approach their own relations differently to prevent further conflicts and contestations on the ground? What role, if any, should the US play in resolving the Ukraine crisis? Fortunately for us, we have one of the book's authors, Samuel Cherup here with us today to address these and other questions. Samuel Cherup is a senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the Washington office of the British think tank, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Prior to joining the Institute, Dr. Cherup was senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security at the State Department and was on the Secretary's policy planning staff where he covered Russia and Eurasia. From 2009 to 2011, Dr. Cherap was director for Russia and Eurasia at the Center for American Progress. He holds a doctorate in politics and a master's in Russian and East European studies, both from the University of Oxford. And though he couldn't be here with us today, it only seems right and fair to include the co-author of the book. Timothy J. Colton is the Morris and Anna Feldberg Professor of Government and Russian Studies at Harvard University. He is a specialist on Russian and Eurasian politics and the author of Yeltsin, A Life and Russia, What Everyone Needs to Know, 
as well as several other works. Following Dr. Trapp's presentation, Cato Research Fellow Emma Ashford will provide her commentary, after which we will have a brief Q&A session. So I will now like to welcome Samuel Trapp to present his book, Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Christine, for that introduction. And thank you for the invitation to be here today. Um, and thank you all for coming. Um, as Christine mentioned, my, my co-author, uh, Tim Colton, can't join us. Unfortunately, he's in Singapore for the semester, so that makes uh, joint book launches a bit difficult. But I will try to channel him today. And I should also mention that the, my colleague uh, uh, in, in the hallway is um, selling the book, if you're interested, afterwards, um, for a discount from what you can find it on Amazon, I believe. Um, but I wanted to start actually with the uh, with the cover image of the book, um, and just talk a little bit about what we're looking at here. Uh, this is the Donetsk airport as it is being destroyed in the summer of 2014, um, and the formal name for the airport, as you can see by the letters that are sort of falling to the ground, there was the Sergei Prokofiev International Airport, named of course after the renowned composer, uh, who himself was a native of the Donetsk province. Um, of course. Prokofiev was born there when it was part of the Russian Empire, and he himself identified as an ethnic Russian and lived most of his professional life in what is now Russia. Um, but he inserted um, into his works motifs uh, from Ukrainian folk songs that he heard as a child um, when he was growing up there. And the airfield was first built by Soviet engineers in the 1940s, but then uh, as part of the preparations for the Euro Cup championship in 2012, uh, that Ukraine co-hosted with Poland in that year, uh, it was totally renovated and rebuilt and was brand new and shiny like a modern airport you would see in any major city. Um, there you can see the man Prokofiev himself on the wall. Uh, and so it sort of seemed to reflect the relative prosperity of uh, the Ukrainian industrial heartland where it was based. and. Um, and the country's increased standing in the eyes of outsiders. Um, but beginning in May of 2014, when uh, insurgents loyal to the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, uh, seized the airport, um, this, the, the Ukrainian military and, and the insurgents um, fought over it for about nine months. And in stages, this monument to Ukrainian-Russian inter-ethnic, uh, uh, so to speak, or intercultural exchange, and, um, and the promise of globalization was systematically demolished. So uh, every uh, last piece of it, from the air traffic control tower to the new and old terminals, uh, the hangars, the fuel storage tanks, even the airport hotel were reduced to rubble. And here you can see one of the so-called uh, DNR insurgents inside of the airport. Um, and so when it finally fell to the separatists in January 2015, uh, the, the, it resembled something like World War II era Stalingrad, um, littered with broken glass, booby traps, and burned out vehicles. Um, and the tragedy of the siege of the airport is that um, 700 human beings died in, in, in the context of that battle. Um, almost 10% of the total uh, deaths in the, in, the, in the war as a whole. Uh, and it was a battle for what was a superfluous asset. The DNR, of course, had no air force. Uh, it was useless as a civilian air terminal from the moment that the first shots were fired. 
Um, the Ukrainian military, which was using it as a, uh, a base to shell uh, downtown Donetsk, could have done so from the better protected uh, wooded areas right around uh, the airport. Um, and actually, as part of the first Minsk uh, uh, ceasefire agreement, they, they had agreed to withdraw. But the command to do so arrived after uh, the television cameras. Um, and so it became politically unattractive for their commanders um, in, in Kiev to, to allow them to retreat. And so they stayed and were lionized on national television as cyborgs, um, superhuman fighting machines uh, prepared to do battle to the death as if the airport were some sort of latter-day Alamo. Um, but unlike the Alamo in Texas, uh, the site had no military val value to speak of. Um, and unlike the Mexicans who besieged the Alamo in 1836, uh, the rebels here allowed the Ukrainian defenders to rotate in and out subject to inspection. And so we argue in the book that the wrecked airport and the battle for the Donetsk airport serves as a apt symbol um, for the broader ruinous dynamic that we observe in the Ukraine crisis and in the international politics of post-Soviet Eurasia as a whole. Um, in game theoretical terms, uh, rather than merely a zero-sum game where one player gains while the others lose, uh, the Ukraine crisis is, as we argue in the book, a negative-sum interaction that has left all of the major players worse off than when it began. And game theory holds that these kinds of negative-sum scenarios are the ones that will generate the most severe discomfort and discord as the players work their way through them. And that certainly has been the case with the Ukraine crisis. And so that is one core argument of the book, namely that everyone, Ukraine, of course, first and foremost, but also Russia, the West, and the other countries stuck in between, have, in fact, lost. Um, but the central narrative of the book is about how we got to where we are. And specifically, we write that today's negative sum outcome is a product of zero sum policies pursued by Russia, the US, and the EU after the end of the Cold War. Um, these policies developed fitfully in the first decade and a half after the 1991, but dramatically intensified thereafter. So that by the mid 2000s, both Russia and the West were pursuing policies towards the states of post-Soviet Eurasia that aimed to extract gains at the other side's expense without regard for shared or overlapping interests and neither side invested serious effort in the task of outlining or even contemplating what a cooperative regional order that all parties could accept might look like. And so the result has not only been the deepening and dangerous divide between Russia and the West, but also dysfunction in the politics of the region states, um, where elites have sought to milk this contestation for their own uh, narrow interests. So Tim and I began work on this project in part because we were not satisfied with the prevailing explanations of the Ukraine crisis and particularly of Russia's actions uh, that have emerged since the watershed events of 2014. The most prominent explanation describes the crisis as a result of Russia's nefarious ambitions towards its neighbors. You know, through this optic, Moscow harbors the long-term strategic objective of subjugating all the former Soviet lands at any cost and that the Ukraine crisis is merely the last the latest and most extreme manifestation of that. Um, but in the book, we argue that to begin and end our understanding of the Ukraine crisis with this uh, alleged grand strategy of regional hegemony um, assumes that Russia's actions in Ukraine in 2014 occurred in a vacuum, which, as the book demonstrates, uh, is contrary to the historical record. We've also seen the converse argument made, namely that the Ukraine crisis resulted primarily from the West's policies toward the region, um, specifically, the, the, this uh, explanation alleges a Western intent to bring Ukraine into NATO uh, and destroy Russia's position there, a purported plan that accelerated towards implementation with the 
Maidan Revolution. Um, but the problem with this explanation, with the factual bits of the narrative notwithstanding, is, is similar to the, to the first one, namely that just as Russian policies were not formulated in a vacuum, neither were Western ones. And so you, you, well, without examining the dynamic interaction between them, what we call the game in the sense of game theory or the negative sum game, um, we cannot truly understand the origins of the Ukraine crisis. Other explanations have turned the lens from the international level to the domestic. Um, specifically, the events of 2014 are said to have flowed from changes inside Russia and the Kremlin's reaction to them. Um, specifically, uh, Putin's approval ratings began to drop following the flawed 2011-2012 election cycle, uh, the street protests in Russian cities in that period, uh, the slowing of economic growth, uh, which of course cast doubt on the previous social contract. And so this explanation uh, basically uh, alleges that the Kremlin decided to fashion a new social contract based on protecting the Russian people from external threats. And so perpetual conflict is now necessary for Putin to maintain his legitimacy at home, or so the argument goes. So to be sure, uh, the Ukraine crisis provided a domestic political windfall um, for Putin. His approval ratings you know, skyrocketed, hitting almost 90% after the annexation of Crimea. But we should be wary of confusing cause and effect, um, because by the time of the Maidan revolution, Putin had effectively addressed the challenges of 2011-2012 through a combination of uh, highly visible repression and a number of uh, creation of a number of uh, steam valves, escape valves in the political system through the liberalization of the party registration law and uh, the return to elected governors. And so he faced no serious threat to his rule. He also embarked on a nationalization of elites campaign, reinforcing elite loyalty as well. So he had popular support and elite fealty. And so it seems to us, under those circumstances, far-fetched um, that he would have taken so disruptive and risky a set of actions purely in order to prop himself up at home. Others have pointed to the lack of an inclusive post-Cold War architecture as the prime explanation for the outcome that we have today. And we have a bit more time for that explanation in the book. Um, but the problem with it, besides being true, it is true that there is no inclusive post-Cold War architecture in Europe. Um, it also uh, neglects the reality that for quite a few years, Russia had a functional, if unhappy, relationship with both the EU and NATO that lasted right up until the Ukraine crisis in 2014. And in the book, we argue that this relationship could have persisted had there not been this contest in the lands between Russia and the West. Um, because it was really that contest that led to the explosion in Ukraine and sent tensions spiraling out of control, and that contest, which is the focus of the book. We begin the narrative of the book in the final years of the Cold War. Um, the end of the Cold War in Europe, we argue, can be characterized as the settlement that wasn't, uh, given both the questions it left unanswered and the rancor surrounding what was and wasn't agreed, and the favor given to what the historian Mary Surratt calls prefab institutions for the regional architecture, i.e. the enlargement without modification of existing uh, institutions, set a time bomb for the future because it would be impossible to accommodate Russia in those structures. And so the stage was thus set for a future clash along the lines of what we call the three geos. In addition to the familiar geopolitics and geoeconomics, we add geoideas, by which we mean policies to spread normative conceptions of the good and the right beyond national borders. And the critical area for our story uh, consists of the six countries that we call the in-betweens. Uh, that is, the former Soviet republics that are now flanked by Russia and East Central Europe, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia in the South Caucasus, Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine in Eastern Europe. 
And so taken together with the five Central Asian republics, um, they form a unique post-imperial landscape. Unlike the lost overseas empire of the UK or France, or the exploded empires of the Ottomans or the Habsburgs, in this case, the former empire is arrayed around the ex-metropole physically. And so Russia's central location gives it immense advantages in dealing with its neighbors. But that centrality also begets a sense of vulnerability. And so while a regime change or a shift in Australian foreign policy, or a regime change in Pakistan, that is, or a shift in Australian foreign policy would have limited, limited direct consequences for the UK, the same cannot be said about Georgia and Kazakhstan from the Kremlin vantage point, gazing out from the Moscow hubs to the spokes and rim. In the 1990s, uh, we argue in the book, the competition in the region was low grade, with some important elements of Russia-West cooperation, particularly the removal of nuclear weapons from Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. But Russia was already developing the habit of resorting to coercion whenever a neighbor didn't comply with its directives and putting up declarative no trespassing signs along the periphery to warn off Western institutions. And in doing the research for the book, it's striking how um, this began long before uh, Vladimir Putin appeared on the, Russia's national political stage. In fact, the decree that, that sort of outlines Russia's policies towards its neighbors dates from 1994 and, of course, was signed by Boris Yeltsin and remains in effect uh, to, the, to the present. Um, but there were also Western habits that began to develop in that period as well, and specifically the habit of beginning to see with each of these heavy-handed moves towards Russia's neighbors the specter of a new Soviet Union emerging um, in this space. And so we call this period, using Boris Yeltsin's phrase, the cold peace, um, because Russia was still predominant in the region by default, and the West made some effort not to step on its toes. Um, but what typified the period was not cooperation, but the chilly disinterest uh, that's insinuated by Yeltsin's term and the beginning of uh, the rise of competition in and over the in-betweens, as well as, to a lesser extent, in Central Asia. Um, but this was mostly a tenuous and informal arrangement in post-Soviet Eurasia that had emerged from this period of the 1990s, and it reflected a number of factors that began to fade at the turn of the millennium. Namely, re Russia's relative dominance in the region also began to fade, the constraints on Russia-West competition, and the shared sense that Russia's institutions and practices were converging with the West's, all of those, of course, came under question uh, at the turn of the millennium. But it was really the color revolutions of 2003, 2005, and, and uh, most of all, Ukraine's orange revolution in 2004 that truly kicked off the unraveling of the cold peace. And the instinct that we saw in that period of both Russia and the West to respond to these breakdowns in opposite and opposing ways, to take opposing sides, um, also pointed to even more hard-hitting competition on the horizon. And in addition to the outward geopolitical clash that, these, that they caused, the color revolutions also solidified geo-ideational linkages between domestic politics and international alignments in the region for both Russia and the West. Moscow, of course, came to see uh, these uprisings as a tool of Western and mainly American foreign policy uh, to remove sitting governments that pursued policies counter to US interests and replace them with figures to do the Americans' bidding, or if all else fails, just to sow disorder. Um, for the West, the, the color revolutions also led to an in intermingling of geopolitics and domestic political change, but of a decidedly different sort. Um, the term pro-Western became synonymous with democratic as a descriptor of local political forces. And so democratic political change and geopolitical gain were seen to go hand in hand, and Russia was seen as an impediment to both. 
And this was particularly true for top policymakers in the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, President Bush himself writes in his memoir, quote, I viewed NATO expansion as a powerful tool to advance the freedom agenda, end quote. Um, so these emerging geopolitical and geoideational conflicts lit the fuse for the explosion that came in Georgia in August 2008. And in the book, we get into the escalation of tensions between Russia and the West that year that set the stage for that conflict. Um, but we also remind our readers that after the Georgia war and really up and until the Ukraine crisis in 2014, this was during the period of the so-called US-Russia reset, um, there was a noticeable diminution in the intensity of the overall regional contestation. And the example we give is the uh, bilateral interaction at following the ouster of Kyrgyzstan's president, Kermanbek Bakiev, in April 2010. Um, and so instead of taking opposite sides when, uh, when there was one of these uh, state breakdown moments, uh, the US and Russia actually worked together, um, facilitating Bakiev's safe escape into exile and coordinating humanitarian assistance. And at the time, that was the only country in the world where both the US and Russia had military bases, so things could have gone pretty bad had they not coordinated. Um, in, in, a, in, in a moment that's sort of fantastical when you, from today's vantage point, in June 2010, then Presidents Obama and Dmitry Medvedev uh, signed a, issued a joint statement on the situation in Kyrgyzstan. But we argue in the book that this period was really a deceptive calm that rose from contingent and circumstantial factors uh, that papered over the underlying problem but did not negate its causes. And so the fundamental conflict relating to the region had not been addressed and therefore remained a landmine that could detonate at any time if activated. Of course, the interlude of diminished competition came to an end in spectacular fashion in Ukraine in 2014, but it was geoeconomics and specifically the tug of war over regional economic integration of the in-betweens um, that was, we should remember, the immediate trigger for the crisis. Back in 2009, um, the EU had settled on what are called association agreements, uh, or AAs, uh, which have deep and comprehensive free trade area agreements, or DCFTAs, at their core as the framework for engaging those states in the region that were aspired to integrate with the EU. And so these agreements, although they have the word free trade in them, it's sort of a misnomer, they, they're more about legal approximation. In other words, they oblige aspirant countries to conform to a vast array of standards, regulations, and laws that are enshrined in the EU acquis communautaire, its rule book. Um, and the requirement to adopt the acquis, of course, was a powerful lever for reform in the countries of East Central Europe uh, during the 1990s and early 2000s. So it was understandable that the EU turned to the same tool of a key approximation uh, to make it its primary means of engagement with the in-betweens because it had been a success and because these countries needed reform. But we argue in the book that the association agreement and a key approximation, generally speaking, uh, it does not just spur reform. It is also a geoeconomic exercise because although fully-fledged membership in the EU has never been on the table, for the in-betweens. In fact, Europe's European neighborhood policy was created as an explicit alternative to membership. The geoeconomic distinction between full membership in the EU and full implementation of the association agreement is less ironclad on closer inspection. Because over time, the association agreements, if implemented, would fold these countries into the EU's geoeconomic space, putting them in a position like Norway is today, where Norway complies with all, um, basically the entirety of the acquis communautaire, but takes no part in EU decision-making since it is not a member of the EU, but is a member of the European Economic Area. 
Even before the Ukraine crisis, of course, Russia objected or rejected these uh, EU efforts on principle. And at the same time that the EU announced its initiative towards uh, this part of uh, Europe, Russia countered or began really consolidating a collective initiative of its own within one month, actually, the, uh, the announcements were made. This is in 2009. And together with uh, Kazakhstan and Belarus, they for Russia formed an institutionalized customs union, which came into effect in January 2010. Um, and so while a number of previous Russia-led regional geoeconomic efforts had uh, really not gotten off the ground at all, this was for once a concrete step. And it led to the more ambitious uh, Eurasian Economic Union, or EEU, in 2015. And so the geoeconomic dimension of the regional contestation had taken on more significance. And both sides were pursuing mutually incompatible and thus zero-sum policies. In 2013, Russia, reverting to those coercive instincts that I talked about as dating from the early 90s, put pressure on the four in-betweens that were flirting with the EU at the time, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and Armenia, either to block their association agreements or, in some cases, to push them to join the EEU. And so this was the broader context for the Russian pressure on Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in late 2013 that led to his shocking last-minute decision to pull out of the association agreement which eventually sparked the protests that produced his downfall. And so as the pandemonium unfolded in Ukraine in the next year, um, Russia and the West both sought to influence events on the ground to gain the upper hand. Of course, Russia's actions, the annexation of Crimea and the intervention in eastern Ukraine, uh, escalated dramatically beyond what had ever been seen before. Uh, and Moscow now also began to present its terms without any nuance or ambiguity. Uh, specifically, uh, the Russians came to insist on ironclad guarantees regarding Ukraine's geopolitical and geoeconomic future in a deal cinched by the great powers and imposed on Ukraine. For its part, understandably, the West rejected uh, that out of hand and sought to counter Russia by imposing sanctions and boosting ties with the new government in Kiev, both via the EU and NATO. Um, so the merits of those policies uh, notwithstanding, or demerits, depending on your perspective, uh, if you take a step back, it's pretty clear that both Russia and the West effectively doubled down on the very policies that had precipitated the crisis in the first place. And also, much like the interaction between Russia and the West in the region before 2014, the diplomatic response to the crisis, compared to the effort spent on these coercive measures, uh, was almost an afterthought. And when talks did occur, little progress was made. But by supporting the insurgency in the Donbass region, Russia has effectively been able to keep Ukraine off kilter. Um, but it is no closer to getting the political settlement that it wants. And that uh, stalemate in Ukraine reflects a broader regional stalemate. Um, in fact, across the region, a similar dynamic in kind, if not in to the same degree, is playing out uh, as a similar dynamic to this stalemate in Ukraine. So neither the West nor Russia can prevail over the other while the contest between them is doing damage to the in-between countries themselves. And that damage, of course, has come most visibly in the form of conflicts, like the one we see on the screen right here, and also, of course, the frozen conflicts, um, in uh, so-called frozen conflicts. But the regional contest, we argue in the book, has also hamstrung political and, econo and economic reform in the in-between countries. As Christine mentioned, uh, these states all suffer to varying degrees from a similar set of post-Soviet pathologies. Dysfunctional institutions of modern governance, partially reformed economies that lack functioning markets, pervasive corruption, and weak or absent rule of law. And viewed in comparison with the post-communist countries that joined the EU, 
in 2004, um, three of which were former Soviet republics, of course, the in-between's disappointing performance after 1991 comes into vivid relief. And in the book, we provide a number of quantitative measures of economic development and governance to demonstrate this. So here on the screen, you see uh, the World Governance Indicators, uh, governance indicators for 2014. It's a World Bank uh, uh, index. And the far right bar is a composite index of the eight EU countries, uh, eight post-communist countries that joined the EU in 2004. Um, and then you see, uh, to your left, the six uh, in-betweens and how they measure up on a number of different uh, metrics here. And you can see the difference. Um, and here are the other three uh, main indicators that the uh, World Governance Indicator Project puts out. Political stability, regulatory quality, and control of corruption. Again, Georgia is here a slight exception, which we can get into in the Q&A if you're interested. In terms of uh, corruption perceptions, there's also the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. Again, with the partial exception of Georgia, you have quite a dramatic difference between um, the EU-8 from 2004, which again is on the far right, and, and the other six, and the, and the six in-betweens. Um, and those dotted lines represent global quartiles. So uh, the red line, for example, demonstrates that in terms of corruption perceptions, and here, higher scores are better. Uh, Ukraine is in the bottom 25% globally. Um, we have a few uh, scores that have been kept over the course of the entirety of the post-communist period um, and demonstrate the sort of divergence in, in transition trajectories. Here on the top, uh, this is the uh, Freedom House uh, political rights score. And the top line is that composite index of the eight uh, accession countries from 2004. And you can see that the gap between them in 1991 versus where it is in 2016 um, is quite a, a different matter. The same is, is true on, on Freedom House's uh, civil liberties score. And if you look at a, at a sort of measure of economic reform, such as the EBRD's competition policy index, you can really see uh, quite a dramatic divergence. And again, all starting out from about the same place. Um, Finally, we, we provided a graph in terms of economic development. Now, this is a GDP per capita comparison using purchasing power parity in 2011 international dollars. It's the World Bank uh, data set. And because not all of the eight uh, 2004 EU accession countries uh, provided data going all the way back to 1991, we used Poland here as a, as, a, as a comparison case. And in fact, it is quite interesting because if you look at Poland in 1991, it is actually below Ukraine in terms of GDP per capita. Um, and then where it is today, it's about three times uh, Ukraine's level. So the only two uh, of the in-betweens that ended up better off than they were in 1991 are uh, oil-rich Azerbaijan and Belarus, a story which we'll get to in, in one second. Um, so, of course, the contest between Russia and the West um, was not the only factor that contributed to this disparity between these two groups of countries, um, but it has fed the dysfunction of the in-betweens in important ways. First, uh, the, the Russian and Western willingness to subsidize political loyalty has made it much easier for governing elites to postpone structural reform indefinitely. So that sort of explains where you get the, the Belarus uh, uh, dynamic in the GDP per capita comparison, because thanks to generous Russian subsidies, Belarus has been able to avoid um, structural economic reform, and its people have uh, um, uh, been actually relatively better off than, than Russia has, in the, in, if you look at the entirety of the post-Soviet period. Um, but the second 
way it plays in is that zero-sum policies on behalf of both Russia and the Western powers have exacerbated pre-existing political and ethnic cleavages in these countries and supplanted democratic uh, discourse with demagoguery. So in Moldova and Ukraine, for example, parties and leaders have declared themselves pro-Western to capitalize on the popular um, view that, uh, uh, or popular desire for good government, which many, of course, associate with the West. Um, but when in power, uh, these uh, politicians have all too often proven just as corrupt and incompetent as their so-called pro-Russian counterparts. Um, additionally, the contest for influence between Russia and the West has hobbled uh, US and EU efforts to assist reform in post-Soviet Eurasia. It's partly a matter of practicalities. When the competition with Russia is at the top of the agenda, other problems like democracy and reform fall by the wayside. But when that competition has been particularly intense, uh, Western policymakers have deliberately downplayed human rights and democracy-related concerns for fear of pushing these countries into Russia's embrace. And this kind of soft peddling of rulers who pledge fealty feeds a widespread perception in the region that public censure regarding human rights and democracy is merely an instrument to punish disloyalty. So what is to be done? And I should uh, be clear that 95% of the book is analytical, but we do have some prescriptive ideas at the end. Um, our basic recommendation is modest. Um, we argue that it is high time to have an open, debate about the future of post-Soviet Eurasia and to move past summations of the problems or denunciations of the misbehavior of this or that side and to develop innovative and realistic proposals for moving past the, zero the negative sum scenario that we find ourselves in. And the sine qua non for this kind of a debate must be an acknowledgment that both Russian and Western policies towards post-Soviet Eurasia have reached a dead end. It is just not tenable for the West to insist on the right of all countries to make their own choices when it comes to joining Western clubs, while at the same time being unable or unwilling to grant them those choices or to take responsibility for the consequences of choosing. Equally, the Kremlin's idée fixe that Russia needs to be the leader of a pack of post-Soviet states in order to be taken seriously as a global power broker is more of a feel-good mantra than a fact-based strategy and it irks even Russia's closest allies. So breaking the taboo on open-ended, precondition-free dialogue on the regional order is the essential first step if we are to mitigate the ruinous competition and end the broader Russia-West confrontation that has reached such dangerous levels in recent years. Of course, holding talks like that in the current atmosphere of mistrust and mutual recrimination will require a significant investment of political capital, and all countries affected by them would have to be at the table. Moreover, the process of moving beyond current adversarial approaches to the region and finding common ground will take time. It will not be, as some of our politicians might prefer, a quick and easy deal. Um, but once talks begin, we have some ideas about the kind of things they might consider. Um, and uh, we get into some detail about that in the book. I'm happy to go over that briefly now. Um, specifically, we, we talk about potential new institutional arrangements uh, for uh, this region that could serve as a bridge between the Euro-Atlantic institutions and their Russia-led counterparts. And we have a preliminary list of criteria for the new arrangements that they would have to, the, the, that those new arrangements would have to meet in order to um, serve as a bridge. Uh, I can get into that more in the Q&A. But of course, even if those broad criteria are satisfied, there's going to be a, a lot of uh, tough negotiating uh, to get to that, to an agreement. And it goes uh, without saying that those would be difficult negotiations and perhaps quite time-consuming. 
But we should remember that endeavors like this are not impossible. The Helsinki Final Act, after all, was perhaps an even more ambitious undertaking, and it was hammered out in the mid-1970s at the height of Cold War tensions. Um, but the first step, we argue, is for the West to test the proposition that Russia would respond positively uh, to an offer of talks, and then eventually to open up the negotiation more broadly to all affected parties. So in conclusion, you know, there are many in Russia, um, and particularly in the ruling class, who are convinced that the West will forever push to extend its reach right up to Russia's borders and maybe even inside of them. And equally, there are many Western policymakers who are uh, equally convinced that, that Russia is a predator state, absolutely committed to domination of its neighbors at any cost. And the sad truth is that neither of these threat perceptions are completely baseless. Uh, and those who hold them can rightly point to numerous reasons why the kind of negotiation process that we propose might fail. But the dire consequences of the path that we're currently on more than justify at least an attempt to find agreement. Thank you very much. Thank you, Samuel. And now Emma Ashford will provide us with her comments. Um, so, yeah, let me start by saying that it was a real pleasure to be asked to read this book and comment on it. Um, and in particular, because when I was younger and I was new to DC and I was considering whether to go back to grad school, I took an internship over at CSIS in the Russia Eurasia program where Sam Sharap was also in residence as a visiting fellow. And so for the interns in the audience, I just wanted to start by saying that if you persist and you work really hard, one day you too can be in a position to publicly critique the work of the person that you're working for right now. <laughs> but I kid, I kid, because um, Everyone Loses is a fantastic book. It is nuanced, uh, it is detailed, it is a great exploration of the broader context of the Ukraine crisis, that something too often we consider as just in isolation. Um, and the book instead explores where this came from. How did we actually get to where we are today? Um, and even though that Russia-US relationship really sort of started to go down the tubes around about the time I was finishing that internship in 2008 when the Russia-Georgia war kicked off, this book actually highlights that the problems had been growing for a lot longer. Um, and I think the book's big strength is that it places all of these developments in that broader sweep of post-Cold War interaction between Russia the West and these in-between states in Central and Eastern Europe. So I don't want to rehash uh, everything that Sam went over about the book, but what I'd like to do today is highlight what I think are some of the book's big insights and the way that they speak to the narratives that we typically use to discuss US-Russian relations and how we should pursue them. Um, and then I want to talk just a little about some of the policy implications the book suggests and how I think we might expand upon these recommendations. Um, a question that has admittedly become even more difficult since this book went to the printers and we have been through the 2016 presidential election. So 
As I, as I mentioned, I think the first big theme of this book that's, that's really worth pointing out is this historical context. The book really makes the point that tensions between the US and Russia over Central and Eastern Europe went all the way back to George H.W. Bush, the Bill Clinton administrations, and the choices that they made in discussions over the future of European security at the end of the Cold War. And I think the narrative that we hear, this is so often simplified to, you know, the Russians say NATO promised that it would never expand, not, not one inch further east. And what you hear out of Washington is, is denials. No, no, we never said that. And there's even been scholarly work that's tried to explore this question and figure out who's right on that question. But this book doesn't sort of get down to, to that level of this specific question. Instead, what it highlights is the ways in which time pressure on policymakers during that key period as the Soviet Union is collapsing led policymakers to avoid discussing new political institutions and instead try and repurpose the old ones, particularly NATO, particularly the European Union. Um, what, what Sanders noted there is the prefab nature of the institutional structures that we have used since the end of the Cold War. And a, a prefab or a prefabricated house was a post-World War II innovation where the house would be built somewhere else and it would be delivered on a truck and you could just put it on the plot and move straight into it. And so for policymakers, existing Cold War institutions were, had this benefit. They could be repurposed and used immediately without lots of discussion. Um, and for political scientists, I think this is not a, a, a new idea or a new innovation. Um, we see path dependence and institutional stickiness in all sorts of political arenas. Um, the debate that's going on right now over Obamacare within the Republican Party is one such debate. It would be easier and better to strike everything and start again and negotiate a brand new deal, but politically it's easier to try and nibble around the edges and reshape what exists today. Um, so post-Cold War institutional change really fits into this model. Um, and I think what the book really highlights pretty well is that there was a cost to this repurposing. Um, there would be no negotiation on a new European security framework, no attempt to build what Gorbachev would have described as a common European home. Um, the authors mostly pin the developments thereafter to this zero-sum game between Russia and the West, but there's really no denying that the lack of new institutional structures contributed to this. It meant that Russia would forever view these institutions as a Western innovation, as the advance of the West. Um, and perhaps the, the biggest tragedy that the book highlights is that many scholars and policymakers at that time in the early 1990s argued that this would be the outcome of um, particularly expanding NATO and trying to draw these in-between states into the institutional structures that had once belonged to the Western camp in the Cold War. Um, the book has a great quote from Strobe Talbot, who was Bill Clinton's Russia hand, who noted, uh, if NATO adopts an anti-Russian rationale for taking in new members, it could tip the balance of forces in Russian politics in exactly the direction that we most feared. And so policymakers at the time knew that this was a problem. Um, many prominent figures in the US foreign policy apparatus at the time made this point. People as diverse as Sam Nunn, Marshall Shulman, Paul Nietzsche, Robert McNamara, all made this point. George Kennan, uh, one of the, the Cold War's clearest strategic thinkers, pointed out that expanding NATO would be a strategic blunder of potentially epic 
proportions. Um, and these critics were to a large extent right. And I think what this book is on a broader scale is a history of that failure, of how that failure in the early 1990s mutated into the problems that we have today. But I want to return to the book's central argument, which is that both sides, both Russia and the West, particularly the US, have pursued this as a zero-sum game throughout the post-Cold War period. Basically, both sides want to influence the states of Central and Eastern Europe, but neither side is willing to accept that the other could also have some influence. And I think often arguments about this fall into a narrative that some people describe as, as whataboutism. So this is a rhetorical tool that goes all the way back into the Cold War, where critics basically say, well, you know, it's, it's bad that Russia invaded Crimea, but look at the US invading Iraq. They're just as bad. And so we get into this debate about both sides trying to decide who is worse. Um, and this is a very misleading exercise um, because what this book really highlights is that without excusing Russia's aggressive behavior in the region, it's possible to accept that there has been fault on both sides in this conflict. Um, and that has landed us today where both sides are losing from their interaction. Um, and I think in particular, this really highlights the inability of policymakers to see things from the other's point of view, something that we could use a lot more often in foreign policy debates. All of this plays into, I think, the third big idea um, that the book really helps to highlight, which is the idea of choice. And this is the narrative that we hear very often in DC in debates over NATO expansion in particular, the idea that it is the choice of the states in Central and Eastern Europe to decide whether they want to join the Euro-Atlantic community or whether they want to align more with Russia. Um, and this is a, you know, this, this sounds like a great idea on the face of it. It's a fundamentally Wilsonian self-determination idea that states should have the choice to pursue what they want. Um, but the terrible irony that this book really highlights is that the zero-sum game has effectively robbed these states of that choice. All of the evidence really suggests that Ukraine during the 2000s would have liked to maintain and build ties with both Western Europe and Russia, to maintain trade with both parties, to maintain political ties with both. The population was roughly evenly split on which way Ukraine should orient itself. There was very much a geographical divide in this split. And so by forcing Kiev to choose the West or Russia, Russian and US policymakers actually probably helped to precipitate political crisis in Ukraine, um, to encourage maximalism, to encourage corruption and confrontation. Um, it's the, the, the idea of it's your choice effectively became an ultimatum to choose one or the other, like, like a child that we're forcing to pick which divorced parent they're going to live with forevermore. Um, and I think the book also points out really clearly that this kind of zero-sum contestation for Central and Eastern Europe required policymakers in both countries to bend their principles and suffer costs. So Ukraine really is the quintessential example here. Um, Ukraine really wasn't qualified to be receiving a European-EU um, association agreement. Uh, it had completed very few of the necessary reforms in governance, economy, um, 
corruption was still a rampant problem, but European leaders bent the rules to try and win Ukraine over to signing that association agreement. And at the same time, Russia's leaders were spending billions in gas subsidies, trade deals, other side deals, trying to win back Ukraine's loyalty. And so this brings me to, I think, the final um, and perhaps most interesting uh, point that the book makes, which is that there's been a real blurring of the lines between geopolitical contestation on the one hand and economic and ideational issues on the other. Um, and I think for, for me, this seems to be most notable in the, the growing ties between foreign and domestic political outcomes. That over the course, particularly of the 2000s, Russia came to see economic development and democratization domestically in these countries as a foreign policy threat because EU and NATO membership became seen as the inevitable end state of these reforms. Um, so as, as the book points out, it's not so much that Russia wants to spread authoritarianism. There's no authoritarian international or, or common turn trying to spread authoritarianism. It's simply that if reform and democratization are seen as a security threat to Russia in that they pull these states towards the West, Russia has an interest in seeing that its neighbors remain poor, corrupt, weak, and fragmented. And this is not good for anybody, particularly for the people that live in those states. And so I think the idea that reform and democratization are implicitly tied to pro-Western foreign policy um, really makes it impossible for the ideas of reform um, and security to be reconciled. So the one area where I think the book is perhaps a little weak and could use a little more work is in the policy options that it offers for moving forward. So the vast majority of the book is analytical in nature, and it does a great job of laying out these problems. Um, but the authors just make a few quite large policy recommendations, uh, fairly vague. Um, and on one hand, this is a good thing because it's not clear that we could even get to the stage of talking about these issues, never mind actually achieving them. But I would have liked to have seen more specificity in the policy recommendations. Right now, what the, the authors argue is that um, both sides need to abandon their maximalist goals, um, that new negotiations over the status of states in Central and Eastern Europe um, have to include those states and take account of their own opinions. Um, and finally, that it's necessary to end the taboo on open-ended discussion of the future regional order. But I think what the authors don't really make clear is whether or not this means that we should be looking for institutional restructuring. Should we be looking at some kind of different path for NATO, for the European Union? Are we just talking about these states remaining independent? And so I think the first of these broad policy recommendations would be a lot easier to achieve than the other three. Um, there's little doubt in Washington or I think in Moscow that the current status quo really isn't working. Um, sanctions have pretty much failed to modify Russia's behavior or return Crimea to Ukraine, um, though Congress, as per usual, is now seeking to institutionalize them. Um, Russia's involvement in the US election has created a lot of opposition to improving relations. Um, but still, I think a new approach to US-Russian relations is probably going to be welcome because it, the only way to go is up. Um, but as much as I would like to see this, there really seems to be very little appetite for any wholesale reimagining 
of the European security framework. There are big political obstacles, um, notably uh, political pressure and opposition in various Western capitals, um, entrenched NATO bureaucracy, who have a strong incentive to push back against institutional restructuring, and even this long-running narrative that NATO expansion, European Union expansion, promotes democratization and economic reform, that's going to die pretty hard. It's kind of hard to abandon an idea that has motivated your regional foreign policy for two and a half decades. And so I think the most interesting question that I would really would like to see the authors address more in future work is what kind of institutional or security-based framework do they actually envision as a replacement for today's European security institutions? Would it be a NATO-Russia condominium, uh, like was initially envisaged with the NATO-Russia Founding Act in the 1990s? Would it be the breakup of NATO into smaller alliances, perhaps more localized, better suited to the post-Cold War environment? Would it be the status quo solidified by treaties, guarantees of no further expansion um, with the, the Finlandization of states like Ukraine? Um, there are a lot of options, but there are very few people talking about them right now. And so it also doesn't really address what the role of the US would be in this process. Should the US disengage from NATO and Europe almost entirely, as some of my Cato colleagues have advocated in the past? Should we be seeking a diminished but still uh, present, more balanced role in European security? Or should the US be seeking to shape this new order? And so I think these are all fascinating questions that the book poses, but that we don't really have an answer for. Um, and, and this is important, because if reform failed in the aftermath of the Cold War, because these prefab, prefabricated institutions were easier than creating new ideas, the same is true today. We know that we need something new, um, but we need new ideas if we're to look past the old ones. So despite that, uh, I highly commend this book to you all. I think it provides a wonderful context for how we got to where we are today in US-Russia relations, and I think really highlights that complexity isn't always a vice in understanding how we might solve serious foreign policy problems. Thank you. Thank you, Emma, for your comments. Samuel, would you like time to respond, or you're fine? Sure. I could say a few things, or I could address it in the Q&A, whichever you prefer. Uh, whatever you're up for. OK. Well, um, we'll move on to Q&A then. Um, so please wait to be called on, and wait for the microphone as well, so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your questions. A few ground rules. Uh, please mention your name and your affiliation. And please keep your question in a question format and not as a comment. Thank you. So let's start with this gentleman in the middle. Hi, Stuart Robertson from the American Legislative Exchange Council. Great book. I would love to read it once I actually can afford it. Um, I was wondering how this kind of analysis would play with the Baltics. So they're not obviously in the same um, sort of category as the in middle in-between states that you were referencing, but Russia has also owned those states and probably prefer to own them again or at least to have some sort of puppetization control over them. I was wondering how you might see what the Western and Russian policies towards them might play out in the future and what uh, the West and maybe the U.S. should do regarding them. Thank you. 
Should I respond to each? Yeah, okay. So why don't I start with a couple of responses to Emma's uh, very uh, interesting and um, uh, in-depth uh, commentary. Thank you very much for that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she highlighted a number of uh, important elements of the book. Um, just on, the, on a couple of points, um, the, there is a, a, a very interesting um, uh, analytical question about the, the nature of the linkage between the decisions made in the early 1990s and the outcome that we have today. Um, I think we, we in the book tend to draw less of a straight line from those to um, the ruinous uh, scenario that we now encounter. In, in other words, that there, there, were, there were ways in which you could still have had the decisions made in the same way and not have the outcome that we had today. Um, and you know, partially that has to do with um, basically an acceptance of uh, current uh, membership of both NATO and the EU in their current uh, um, geographical uh, state by, by both sides. Um, not to say that that was ever on the table, but the point is I think that before 2014, that is before uh, this, this contest really exploded in Ukraine, um, we were able to have, it wasn't a good relationship with Russia, but at least it worked and it wasn't as out of control as it is today. Um, and so, we, you know, and the other point to make about the decisions made in the 90s is that there were reasons why they did what they did, even if, it, if there were consequences to what they did what they did. And the other point, of course, to make is that there weren't all bad negative consequences, that the, the story of reform in East Central Europe is a foreign policy success story that uh, the people who made those decisions should, in fact, be proud of. And um, we have to weigh that positive with the negative that, uh, that, Emma, that Emma noted. I would say that um, to getting to her uh, challenge at the end, um, in part, we, we tried to remain a little bit general because what was striking looking back at the last 25 years is how little discussion has been had about this. You know, the, the, fa the calling for an open debate is actually innovative, believe it or not, because we haven't had one, really, with all the issues on the table, particularly at the governmental level. Um, but what I think is uh, we do, where perhaps we do differ a little bit, is that we are not, and this gets to the Baltic states question, uh, calling for a wholesale reimagining of the uh, European security architecture. Um, we are talking about potential uh, options for states that are currently not members of um, the EU and NATO, not uh, rearranging the EU and NATO themselves. Um, I, I don't think that would either be feasible or desirable, um, frankly, at this point. Um, and I think the challenge is coming up with positive and attractive um, and mutually acceptable um, solutions to address economic and security challenges for these countries that won't cause greater divisions between Russia and the West. And so how to connect that to the Baltic states question. So the Baltic states question, we treat, you know, the Baltics in the book, we treat as part of East Central Europe, i.e. the West, from basically several years after the Soviet collapse. And I think that they are in a different category today, um, both because of their uh, relative reform success and the fact that they uh, have, you know, a NATO security guarantee and that Russia, I think, treats them differently as a result. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if, um, I think Russia uh, does understand the difference between NATO Europe and non-NATO Europe. Arguably, it invaded two countries to keep them out of NATO. So presumably, it understands the, the, the difference between the, between the two. So I, I, 
worry less about a, um, uh, a, a kind of, you know, Putin waking up one morning and, and thinking to himself he really wants Latvia that day and then it all being over, and more just the broader tensions between Russia and NATO leading to inadvertent uh, escalation or, and a miscalculation producing an outcome that neither side would have wanted. And now that we have essentially a buildup in that, on both sides of the Russia-NATO frontier, um, the chances for that only increase. Thank you, Samuel. Um, let's see, that gentleman in the top right corner in the red sweater. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm a Russian Fulbright student here at GW studying for a master's in public policy. Uh, I have wanted to, like, if you excuse me, like a really short comment on Baltic states. It's, uh, you know, there's a very short way to describe this. This is a fake news, a hoax story. <laughs> I mean, this is like, you know, it's, a, it's just a figment of imagination. I don't think it is a problem. Nobody that has any, you know, uh, direct, uh, is working directly with it, um, recognizes it as a problem. It's uh, a thing in international relations circle that... And to you your know. question, please. The question is, uh, the name of the book and the arguments uh, here being made are that everyone loses, that it is... Uh, um, uh, almost all actors are uh, locked in uh, a game where everyone is uh, constantly uh, losing something. But I would ask, who is actually winning? Because I think that somebody is winning. I think there are, you know, some actors that you uh, mentioned, such as you know, entrenched bureaucracies and so on and so forth, who are lobbying for this, who are warmongering, who are. Uh, very aggressive, who build political capital on this, who build uh, their institutional position on this and are winning a lot, and they have won a lot. Uh, have you um, made an attempt in your book and your analysis to find who is actually driving this and winning from it? And uh, how do you attempt uh, in you know, looking for solutions for this crisis uh, to deal with these people and these institutions and th these forces? Thank you. Um, so on the comment, while I, I, I agree with the spirit of, of, the, of, of your point on um, fake news, figment of imagination, it is, it's a little bit more nuanced, I would say, you know, that when there are threat perceptions, these are allies of the United States, and so the uh, reassurance in the context of unpredictable or what is seen as unpredictable Russian behavior is not, um, you know, uh, it's not a. Uh, it's a rational and reasonable response to um, to you know allies' concerns. And so, the the question um, ab about Russian intentions is a different one, uh, really, than um, than than the reassurance uh, decisions that that uh, allies in, in NATO have to make. Um, so it is true that, and I, and I want to clarify that we, when we say everyone, we we really mean the major players, and that 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 is the states and the societies involved. Um, of course, uh, Ukraine first and foremost, and the Ukrainian people first and foremost, but uh, also um, Russia as a country and its and its people and uh, the other states in between, as well as uh, Western countries as well. In terms of you know interests of, we get into how it's affected uh, U.S. attempts to operate in the international system, and when U.S.-Russia relations are uh, uh, the way they are, it becomes very difficult to get things done. Um, but uh, you make a good point that there are more local. There are some local actors who are, in fact, winning. I would point to less um, bureaucracies and more 
you know, like the leaders of the separatists uh, in, in the so-called DNR and LNR, um, or the pro-Russian elite in Crimea. They certainly are in a better place than they were before 2014. Um, but I don't think that we can judge who is driving the or what factors are driving the broader uh, dynamic from the these wins by relatively um, uh, second-tier actors. I don't think they are um, ultimately t- determining. I mean, they, the tails sometimes do wag dogs, but uh, uh, they're, they're not the central actors in this story. Thank you. I think Emma wanted to respond as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, one, one thing that I really did like about this book is that it highlights a, a truism or a fact that any, any student that's ever taken IR 101 knows, which is that two states can make both make perfectly rational decisions and both end up in a worse place as a result of it. And some of what we see here um, is just the, the natural result of two states misunderstanding one another, misperceptions form a huge part of this of this relationship. And so rather than looking at some of these smaller sub-state actors, I, I think the book really highlights that these misperceptions are, are a big part of the story. Thank you. Um, yes, sir. My name is Zach Jones. I'm from a student from American University. Uh, my question was about the new U.S. administration's um, relationship to NATO um, and how there's some tension there. I was wondering if you thought that maybe that would increase the chances of opening up talks over the region um, because maybe Russia won't see the U.S.'s intentions as um, uh, having malice. Who would like to take that? Um, so I think there was... Uh, potentially a window of opportunity with the change in administration. I think that probably would have been true um, no matter who had won the U.S. presidential election because generally changes of administration are opportunities to reassess policies and relations with uh, important countries. Um, I don't think, however, that uh, statements of intent are likely to dramatically shift Russian perceptions of uh, of the U.S., that they would have. this would have to be a... Um, uh, an effort that would be undertaken over the course of you know months, if not years, it would be uh, a difficult negotiation that would have to really you know you'd have to have people who are willing to engage um, in the details. Uh, and so, uh, it's yet unclear to me what exactly the uh, policy of the United States under the Trump administration regarding these questions is. Um, and so, it's hard for me to answer this question. Um, I would say that uh, it's not going to work. Uh, that is an, a negotiation like this or an arrangement like the one we're uh, calling for, if it's done bilaterally, it has to be, it has to involve the Europeans, it has to involve the U.S. allies and partners in the region, and it has to involve the states affected. Um, so uh, the, the, even if it starts at a U.S.-Russia bilateral level, it's eventually going to have to, and that requires the U.S. bringing its allies along. And so if you have bad relations with your NATO allies, it's going to make, it's going to complicate matters when it comes to negotiating um, um, with, with Russia. Okay, um, let's move to this side. So you, sir. Um, okay. uh, my name is David Hoffman. And I'm with the Women's National Democratic Club. Yes, men are also members. And Dr. Chirap, you know you've been invited also separately to do a book forum there. But my question for today is, um, as you look at, of course, this is asking you to foresee the future. 
and people generally shy away from that. But uh, does the election, in your opinion, of Donald Trump, if it was his el an election, does it make a path out of the zero-sum situation, the stalemate, or the negative-sum interaction um, related both to the Ukraine crisis and the larger uh, regional uh, post-Soviet uh, Eurasian crisis? Is it your hunch, your best educated guess, that with Trump as president, with his let's say, murky relationship with uh, Putin, does it make it in your, is your hunch that it makes it somewhat easier bilaterally? Granted, it takes multilateral, but does it, is it perhaps making, making it easier to get to, to uh, some resolution or harder? Well, I mean, it's sort of a similar question to the last one. Let me take a, a different uh, cut at it. Um, what I would say is that uh, regardless of um, what uh, the administration's intentions are, um, what is clear is that uh, this, the issue of, the Russia issue has become a domestic political issue now in the U.S. I mean, that sort of goes without saying at this point. Um, and I think that it's, when a foreign policy issue becomes politicized, generally speaking, it becomes harder to do business. Um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, it becomes harder to do, make policy in a rational um, and purely sort of national interest oriented way because the domestic politics sort of overwhelms that. So I think um, whatever uh, um, chance for a new start, so to speak, might have existed with a any new administration, I think by this time have been to a significant extent spoiled um, both in terms of uh, the way this is playing out here and, um, and in terms of uh, the way that is perceived in other countries. I think Emma wanted to speak on that as well. Yeah, just to add something that we were talking about downstairs before we actually came up here, which is no matter what the Trump administration wants to do and no matter what the domestic political obstacles to that are, there's also the fact that the new administration would need to undertake a fairly difficult, detailed, nuanced, diplomatic approach to Russia to actually achieve a lot of these things. Right now, with so few appointments in key agencies, um, with so few people in the administration with any experience in foreign policy, that kind of outcome will be harder to achieve than usual. So in, a, in addition to some of these obstacles, there are also institutional ones. Absolutely. <clears throat> yes, you, sir. Uh, wonderful talk. My question, uh, my name is Stephen Shore. My question is this. And where are you from? What's oh, your I, I work for a federal agency, a wholly domestic federal agency called the PBGC. Uh, it's a, a, a fallacy in human events that if you a state of affairs is less than optimal, that some another alternative would ha would have been better. We cannot set the clock back, but was there really an alternative, uh, something like the Austrian model, possible when the Berlin Wall, wall fell, uh, when when there was a treaty, so Austria became officially neutral yep. as it is to its its day. But Russia, the Soviet Union, had was in a very poor bargaining position. Mm -hmm. Its neighbors, truly, the people who as one nation state fell after another, truly wanted that the, the, uh, to be free of any fear that the Russians slash Soviets were returning. And so uh, that it's hard to, even though there were risks in expanding NATO, that was what 
the people wanted, and it's really, to me, hard to see a alternative. My second question, a briefer one, is given the dynamics of two combatants, even if it's the combat between the US and Russia over Ukraine and Moldova is not violent, at least not yet, is it, is it not psychologically impossible for one of the combatants to ask for a new approach in regard to the other? Would that not immediately be seen as a sign of weakness unless a, third, a trusted third party were to propose an alternative? And it's very hard to see any objective third party um, intervening between, in the competition between the US and Russia over Ukraine. Um, so, uh, it's of course a historical counterfactual exercise to think about alternatives by definition. Um, and I think the way policymakers in the uh, very end of the 80s and the early 90s thought about this is the tremendous risks associated with a dramatic change to the status quo. So there were ideas like Austrianization. Um, uh, actually, Kissinger himself was talking about that in 1990, I believe. Um, and there were other ideas like empowering what was then called the CSCE, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which became the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, to be you know, uh, the new sort of center of gravity uh, instead of what was then the European communities and, uh, and um, the European community and, and NATO. Um, but these were, of course, uh, seen as very risky and potentially, um, you know, with a lot of negative consequences. Moreover, as you mentioned, uh, no one was forcing them to consider those options because uh, the, their, their counterparts in Moscow were, you know, was, uh, Russia at the time was, falling, was in serious economic trouble. Um, and I think um, the point, though, Oh, well, there's also the, 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 the recent experience of German reunification and how successful that was seen. And of course, the way German, Germany was reunified is that literally uh, the Eastern Germany became a part of the Federal Republic, thus also becoming part of NATO and the uh, EC at the time. Um, and talk about a prefab solution. Um, but, uh, and it was seen as a runaway success uh, by, the, by 91, 92 already. So, um, but the point we make is less about uh, viable alternatives that should have been adopted and more about just noting the consequences of decisions that were made, perhaps for understandable and good reasons. And there were both positive consequences and negative consequences. I think that's sort of, we sort of are more modest about um, uh, what could have been. I think uh, Mary Surratt in her book, uh, 1989, does get into what, some alternatives might have been. Um, and so I encourage you to have a look at that if you'd like. Um, interpreting a uh, offer of talks as a sign of weakness. Um, so uh, the, the challenge here is that, um, that I always see with, with this issue is what does, um, in this context, uh, I, I, let me put it this way. The downside to attempting to begin a negotiation, I think, always is exaggerated in uh, debates about foreign policy. That it, it seems to me that there are um, far fewer uh, uh, downsides to this than, um, than are often imagined. And we never really know until we test the proposition. Um, in this case, it's my view that, uh, that if all parties involved were offered a, um, 
a, a, another path forward that met their sort of bottom lines but, and ended the losses that all of them are incurring, that they would at least be interested in discussing that. Um, and in terms of third parties, I think it's important to note that this is not a U.S.-Russia confrontation. I mean, the, the, in fact, the EU, among Western uh, actors, uh, the EU and Germany in particular is much more in the lead on the diplomacy surrounding the Ukraine crisis specifically. Um, so, uh, you know, at this point, the U.S. might be considered the third party, um, ironically. Okay, I think, Emma, did you want to add anything? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, Rosalie, I, I really just wanted to echo this point that I think it matters less that we have a discussion about where we went wrong back in the 1990s and more that we try and move towards understanding where it leaves us today. And so this book really focuses on the sort of the negative implications of those choices um, for U.S.-Russian relations. Um, and Sam is right that there were also some positive implications, notably the development and prosperity of, of some of Central and Eastern Europe. But there's other areas where those choices are also impacting some of our, our choices today. And I think it's worth pointing out that NATO expansion itself has fundamentally weakened the alliance's ability to do collective defense. So policymakers in the 1990s made choices to expand the alliance to a lot of new countries, many of which didn't necessarily have the technical capacity to add to NATO's collective defense. They made the decision to look for a new mission for NATO to keep it alive by focusing on out-of-area missions and peacekeeping. These two missions kind of drove one another in the you know out-of-area missions in Bosnia and former Yugoslavia helped to drive the expansion of NATO into those areas later. But all of that has resulted in a situation today where NATO is harder to defend territorially. The, the Baltics are harder to defend than West Germany was during the Cold War. Um, it has worsened uh, NATO's existing free rider problem, the fact that the US pays so much disproportionately of NATO's budget. Um, and expansion has also, I would argue, served to make NATO less popular uh, among member state populations, partly because of an increasing awareness of this free rider problem in an era where there aren't that many threats. So I think the book really highlights U.S.-Russian relations as one sphere where these decisions are starting to, to come back to haunt us. But I think there are other areas, and I think NATO expansion is one that we should be talking about more. Thank you, Emma. The gentleman to the far left, thank you for being patient. Hi, uh, uh, Pat Spann, just myself. On the uh, issue of Ukraine, especially the Eastern Ukraine, one of the, um, I used to refer to them as great Russians, but I guess you could say ethnic Russians now. But um, the percentage of the ethnic Russians in uh, especially Eastern Ukraine, I wonder what it, what that is. And even though they've been there, like you mentioned the name of the airport, many generations, it seems like their loyalty is to, to uh, greater Russia as opposed to the Ukraine. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Sure. Um, perhaps one comment quickly on, on, the, on the question of um, uh, the implications of NATO enlargement. Um, the, the thing that's important to remember, it's hard to remember today in the context of the re re return of sort of hard security and uh, 
and potential great power conflict in Europe is that in the 1990s, NATO enlargement was viewed in the context of facilitating the transition from communism in Central and Eastern Europe. It was not seen as, you know, first and foremost about extending U.S. security guarantees. It was about facilitating reform, both of the security sector and more broadly. Um, and that's how uh, policymakers were often thinking about it. Um, and so by the time when suddenly, and that was also in part because Russia wasn't considered a major security threat. And so Russia's military power reemerges and suddenly people notice that they've extended security guarantees along with this glorious um, facilitation of the transition from, from communism. And I think it was more, went, it was an inadvertent uh, consequence of viewing these, or use, repurposing institutions that were meant for uh, something else for different purposes. Um, so uh, it would be, incorrect to view um, the uh, internal element of the conflict in eastern Ukraine, and of course the external intervention is impossible to deny, uh, through an ethnic lens. This is not a inter-ethnic conflict a la former Yugoslavia, um, even though uh, there are, um, relatively speaking, a higher percentage of ethnic Russians in uh, Donetsk and Lugansk than there are in, say, Ivano-Frankivsk or Lviv. Uh, in Ukraine as a whole, and granted our numbers are pretty dated because the last census was in 2001, um, Russians comprised 19% of uh, the population, uh, people who identified as ethnic Russians. Um, but the, the real differences in Ukraine have always been political, and they've been about um, what it means to be Ukrainian and competing conceptions of national identity. Um, and the, the problem has been in the past that those uh, different ideas about what it meant to be Ukrainian also uh, explicitly um, considered the other idea illegitimate. Um, so uh, you have, um, you know, President Yanukovych's education minister who would say things like Ukrainian isn't a real language. Um, and then you would have a reaction, uh, understandably so, in some of the uh, Western provinces uh, where you get far-right parties like Svoboda uh, winning majorities in the regional parliament. So um, it has, it, you know, although, uh, so loyalty to the Ukrainian state was also generally uh, not the issue. It was more about the reaction to um, the Maidan revolution that um, sort of made uh, Donetsk and Lugansk a um, fertile ground for stoking an insurgency um, because uh, it, uh, the Maidan revolution seized on a number of divisive symbols and rhetoric, and that has continued since then, um, that, uh, and that, you know, that a lot of people in that part of Ukraine find um, unappealing, to put it mildly. Um, so uh, I don't think the question is about loyalty to a different state. It's just about a different understanding of what it means to be uh, Ukrainian. Yes, sir. My name is Oris Korpetsky. Uh, I don't represent anyone. I guess I'm a, a self-employed economic consultant. Um, the question I have or comment is, yeah, uh, I agree with this gentleman. The, the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Hungarians, they really uh, they wanted to be in NATO. And that was a democratic, I, I think, uh, desire. Uh, but. What I want to ask you to comment on, we had the Budapest Memorandum. Mm -hmm. The Budapest Memorandum said, we will denuclearize. Ukraine, Ukraine, <clears throat> excuse me, Ukraine denuclearize. 
but in return for some sort of assurance that its borders would remain intact. Now this collapsed. And I'm wondering, why didn't you bring that up in your story? <laughs> well, it certainly comes up in the book. Um, so to be clear, what the because sometimes the, the particulars are forgotten in this context, the Budapest Memorandum, uh, in return for Ukraine uh, joining the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as a non-nuclear weapon state, and um, and uh, giving up the the arsenal that was stationed on its territory, um, the states uh, and the, it was both the um, the U.S., the U.K., and um, France and uh, China actually joined it in in the context of the uh, UN Security Council. Um, uh, and Russia, providing assurances to Ukraine that all of them would not violate Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Of course, Russia did violate that uh, that agreement. It was not a politically, it was not a legally binding agreement, um, but in, in a way that doesn't really matter because Russia signed a number of legally binding agreements that also uh, reaffirmed its commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Most prominently, the 1997 so-called Big Treaty, the Treaty on Friendship and Cooperation, I think the second section of which um, reaffirms uh, uh, both sides' commitment to the other's sovereignty and territorial integrity within their internationally recognized borders. So um, treaty violation uh, was pretty rampant in the context of territorial annexation and, uh, and uh, invasion. Um, why I didn't bring it up, I guess, is because it didn't prove to be a, a crucial element in, in the crisis. I think it more is, uh, has been something we've talked about as why certain international agreements don't work um, under and under what circumstances they do in, in the crisis's aftermath. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Um, the gentleman in the middle, please. Maybe we can take two, actually, and yours as well, ma'am. Thanks. Hi, I'm William Creedon from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. And I was wondering if you could clarify a little bit more on what would bring the EU, the United States, Russia, Ukraine, to productive and sustainable talks. You know, what are their uh, bottom lines that need to be met for that? Thank you. Uh, would you like to ask your question as well? We'll oh, take sorry. it together. Uh, my name is Katerina Stone. I'm with the U.S. State Department, but I'm here as a private individual. Uh, my husband and I were posted to Ukraine 2005 or 2008, right after the Orange Revolution. Uh, everyone was so excited. Everybody was so optimistic. And we witnessed how, after everybody was so happy, how the people suddenly started going down their... Um, their mood and their uh, optimism, because they felt like that we abandoned them. This um, was strengthened after 2014. I have lots of friends there who were just sharing on Facebook how they're going to the Maidan uh, to take down, you know, to take down uh, the, the prime minister, and they were taking shifts. And now the um, idea of the West abandoning Ukraine is even stronger. Uh, do you think that they're right, and do you think that we can something can be done out of it? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll start with the second one. Um, I think it, it's important to remember how extraordinary the efforts that um, Western governments have undertaken in support of Ukraine since 2014. Um, 
you know, the sanctions, although uh, I would agree with Emma that they have not achieved their policy objective, um, are the most significant economic sanctions in modern, you know, in the modern history of sanctions. Um, Russia's economy was twice the size of all previously sanctioned economies combined in the, in the U.S. context. Um, and so, and the EU particularly, and we cite a study in the book, uh, has taken an economic hit from these sanctions. So, uh, but, and you know we're about to see another billion in IMF uh, loan disbursement of a 17.5 billion dollar program that was um, uh, signed in the, in the aftermath of the Maidan revolution. There's been a, a lot of um, non-lethal, but nonetheless military assistance from the U.S. So I, I do think that, uh, and also technical assistance in terms of facilitating reform. Um, so uh, fears of abandonment, notwithstanding, I think the that. Um, parad or paradigm of abandonment is set up by the fact that we've created expectations that um, are, are in part fed into expectations that are unlikely to be met. Um, when uh, um, particularly the former prime minister and the current president talked about their long-term priorities, they said NATO and EU membership. And, you know, um, I think that the, the reality of that being um, not uh, uh, likely uh, anytime soon um, is one that uh, is hard for um, Western officials to, to actually say out loud. Um, and when they do, they get in trouble. Um, so uh, I think that does create this uh, fear of abandonment because I think it's a, a reality that everyone understands, but no one is really able to say. Um, and perhaps as a result, uh, that's where we, we end up. I think the other question about abandonment comes in in terms of the linkage between Ukraine's reform performance and um, Western willingness to continue its support. Um, you know, there are a lot of, there have been some important uh, positive steps taken since 2014 in terms of domestic reform, uh, but there is a long way to go and there are a lot of negative trends that have also developed. Um, I think that uh, if, uh, if the positive ones don't accelerate quickly, um, we're likely to see um, what is commonly referred to as Ukraine fatigue set in to an even greater extent than it is now, and perhaps some Western disengagement. I also worry about the long-term sustainability of the EU consensus on um, sanctions, regardless of this policy impact. It seems like that is a question of uh, when and not whether. Um, that is, the, con the consensus will fall apart, in part because there was never an agreement that they would be perpetual, uh, that is the financial and energy sanctions when they were when they were created in, in July of 2014. Um, bottom lines in talks. Um, so uh, to put it very uh, crudely, if there is at the moment, you know, if Russia's bottom line is making sure that uh, that these countries don't enter Western uh, Euro-Atlantic institutions, and the Euro-Atlantic institutions have no interest or ability to uh, actually enlarge at the moment, that would seem to lay the groundwork for some common ground, actually. Um, and that's sort of the tragic irony here that, uh, that, that there is some, <laughs> that reality is, uh, is the, behind the, um, behind the, um, sometimes soaring rhetoric, uh, is a whole lot more, uh, perhaps amenable to some sort of, um, mutually acceptable compromise than, uh, than we might think. Thank you. So we are out of time. Actually, we're running over time. Um, thank you very much, Samuel and Emma, um, and to the audience for your questions.